The Biden administration's push for improved customer experience couldn't come at a better time. More people than ever are trying to access federal agencies, yet satisfaction with the experience is at an all-time low. Data provider TransUnion has some statistics that can help agencies craft better customer experiences. The company's director of research and consulting, Greg Schlichter, joins me with more. Mr. Schlichter, good to have you on. Good morning, Tom. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about some of the statistics you have found about the usage of programs and just what's going on statistically in terms of Americans interacting with federal agency websites. Earlier in the pandemic, we did a survey of visitors to government websites, and we found that only 35% of them reported having an easy experience. During the pandemic, the need for an accessible online experience has become more of a necessity than a nice-to-have. Agencies need to identify opportunities to improve cumbersome processes like eligibility determination or identity verification. There were 5 billion visits to U.S. government websites in the 90 days before we released this study. So the demand for online engagement with government agencies is there. It's just not being met. And as a financial services related company, you also have some interesting stats that I saw about people the unbanked or the people that uh, you know have no credit history and so forth. And since everybody is entitled to what's happening on federal websites, unlike Amazon, if you can't pay for it, you can't have it. But that's different for the government. So give us some of those American statistics. There are about 60 million U.S. adults with little to no credit history. And this underscores the difficulty faced in truly assessing somebody's complete financial situation And that needs to be incorporated into the design of government programs that rely on financial information to determine somebody's benefit eligibility. If you look at alternative data or even trended credit data, that can be used to improve that eligibility decisioning and expand access to these kinds of programs, especially where a a non-traditional credit background is both an indicator of somebody's need for a benefit and a barrier to accessing it. Sure. And so what can federal agencies do in the design of applications that have to get this information and make decisions, either sometimes aided by artificial decision-making or artificial intelligence, but backed by a human, to be able to make fair determinations? They don't want to give money to fraud claims, but they don't want to be so selective that people deserving can't get access either. Security, I think, is is obviously a concern here. And a lot of people's initial reaction is just to throw more data at the problem. And that's a good impulse, but it's definitely not going to get you all the way there. As a push, you know, to improve this, this service delivery, agencies need to balance accessibility with appropriate levels of identity protection and fraud prevention. And there are some pretty cool solutions out there for building fraud models that, you know, can link multiple data sources, identity data, device intelligence, things like that, in order to detect and block suspicious behavior without adding any visible friction to online processes. And what in the world do people named Jim Smith or Mary Smith do in all of this? I always (laughs) wondered how they do anything online. Yeah, I mean, that's why a name is not, it's never enough. Uh, Once you get down to name, date of birth, social security number and address, then you can start separating the Jim Smith's from each other. But, you know, in order to collect that information from the public, especially if they're putting it into a website and maybe not speaking directly with a person, 
there needs to be that level of trust. And I think you can you can only have that level of trust if you know that your information is being cared for, that your identity is being protected, and that only the, the bare minimum is being asked of you to determine who you are. We're speaking with Greg Schlichter. He's director of research and consulting at TransUnion. Not every American can access online necessarily, and a lot of federal programs need to use telephone access, some in person, although in the pandemic that's not happening a lot. What are some of the opportunities for improving customer experience, say, for not in the traditional online model and, say, with telephone and call centers? I'll take a step back, and I think it's important to remember government agencies do have easier access to citizens than they've ever had. Uh, 98% of U.S. adults can be reached online. Now, whether that's through an email address, a streaming platform that they use, uh, a smart device of some kind, and that that is a vector at the very least for improving education opportunities to get people up to speed about what services their government offers. When it comes to onboarding those folks, there are strategies, and and TransUnion provides this service, where we can use device intelligence to help you connect with your constituents in a way that your phone doesn't get flagged as spam if you're calling somebody. Who knows how many COVID contact tracing calls were missed because you're calling somebody from an unknown number or because it, you know, instead of saying Maryland Department of Health, it just said a phone number. Many people don't pick up unknown numbers anymore. And it's, it's high time that, that many government agencies begin to improve the phone aspect of their experience. And I believe anything, any steps that they can take towards building that level of trust is, is a step in the right direction. And even for those that still use landlines, because there are still a few million of those around. There, there are. And you know, I can't tell you how many times I get a call from somebody talking about surprise back taxes that I owe, and I can I can pay them off in gift cards. There are scams that are happening, and they're typically targeting people on landlines who don't have that that notification that pops up on a cell phone. The government needs to begin reestablishing trust in those kinds of interactions with constituents. In fact, one of our best lines of defense is the clerk staff at supermarkets near retirement establishments. Uh, yeah, absolutely because they see this coming in all the time, the nearby residents coming in trying to buy bundles of gift cards. And they say, yeah. don't do this, you know, and so and, on. It, it targets a, a shocking amount of people. We did a, uh, a survey last quarter and found that 12% of our respondents reported being targeted by unemployment insurance scams. And that's just the people who knew that they were targeted. The number of people actually targeted is a lot higher and you know the introduction of expanded UI benefits was followed by a, a gold rush in government benefits fraud, and it's going to take workforce agencies a while to untangle that mess, begin recouping some of their losses, let alone deter future fraudsters. And also, TransUnion found that 35% of Americans who report an easy experience with a government website, which sounds like a low percentage, and it jives with what other surveys, particularly the American Customer Satisfaction Index, recently came out with. How can that get improved with data? I think it comes down to identifying opportunities to streamline those interactions and reducing the time tax that come with learning about enrolling in and accessing government benefits programs. So using multiple data sources to verify you are who you say you are, that you're using a device that is known to be associated with you and that you're in a location 
that you typically access online services from. And we want to do that in a way that is as invisible as possible using background data so that you don't have to answer a battery of questions time and time again to reestablish your identity. And in your experience from the standpoint of being a provider of some of these data and data services, is there any particular industry or maybe you can even name a particular company that is recognized as the gold standard in all this that the government might be able to gather some wisdom from? E-commerce leaders, if you look at Amazon or Walmart, they make it as easy as possible to buy something. There's a lot of fraud detection going on in the background that you don't notice, and nor should you notice. Or if you look at a lot of services offered by any of the big, the big fang stocks, they make it as easy as possible to access uh, their services, to set up some kind of subscription, and to to meet the needs of the people coming to their websites as quickly as possible. And it all comes down to user experience and user design, basically. Greg Schlichter is Director of Research and Consulting at TransUnion. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much. It was great to be on. We'll post this interview along with a link to its Trends Report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then clean houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and 
obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind. 
um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job. And then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com slash vision. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit LiveXLive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.